Well, let's turn now to our study of God's Word. And again, I want to bring to you this week a special message. Um, Not directly from the Gospel of Luke like we normally go through. We will, Lord willing, return there next week. Uh, But this week I want to speak to you about children and baptism. Children and baptism. You recall that some weeks ago, as we were going through Luke, we came upon this passage, Luke 18, and verses uh, 15 through 17. And Jesus there speaks of the kingdom of God belonging to such as these. Let me read that to you, Luke 18, 15 through 17. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. When the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Now, when I preached that passage, we spent some time on verse 16 talking about what does it mean that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these? And I spent some time uh, detailing the scriptures on uh, babies who die in infancy and young children. And that's the focus, I think, of 16. And then 17 is telling believers to be like a child and that they receive the kingdom, receive the grace of God, not upon their own works, not upon their own merits, but like a child, like even a baby who can do nothing to earn their way into the kingdom. And then last week, we looked at just children and salvation. I thought it was a good time to stop and just look specifically at what the Bible has to say about salvation and how that applies to children. And, and I said in that message that children could be saved at a young age. And we looked at the fruit that you should look for. We even discussed the, the often quoted phrase, age of accountability. And so to sort of conclude that mini-series that stop along the way on children that we're doing here, I want to look at children and baptism. Now normally, um, I would preach a message on baptism first, which I realize I have not done yet since we planted this church. Before we started, we were studying the, the Bible actually three years ago yesterday. We started meeting in my home, and some of you, a few of you were there three years ago yesterday. I saw the pictures come up on Facebook. We had our first Bible study, and we went through the things of the church over those few weeks in my house, and We covered baptism. We touch on it every new members class. You've seen baptisms here. You've heard testimonies. I've taught briefly as we've done it. But not an actual message on a baptism. So even though it's applying to children, I think half to two-thirds of this message will apply to anybody if they've been baptized or want to be baptized or isn't even saved yet and needs to know more about what the Bible says. Well, to sort of orient us on where our country and where the church in America today is on children and baptism, I want to just start by quoting Dr. Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. So this is a president, a a younger president of probably one of the more prominent Southern Baptist seminaries in our country. And although we're not Southern Baptists, we can learn a lot from their studies and what they're saying about baptism. We do believe in Believer's baptism, which I'll get to, just like Southern Baptists hold to believer's baptism. Here's what Dr. Allen says. Within Southern Baptist life, we have seen a steady march towards infant baptism, routinely baptizing children younger and younger in age. 
So he's responding here to the first Baptist church in Ohio that had sprinkled an infant. And people, the press came and asked him, and so he's responding here and saying, even in Southern Baptist life, we've seen a, a march to uh, get down to infants, baptizing at a younger and younger age. And he's right. Uh, a study in 2014 of the SBC tracked numbers very closely. They, they do every year. And they look at who's being baptized, what age. And they found the only consistently growing age group in the Southern Baptist Convention is five and under. So of all the baptisms that happen every year in the SBC, they're all going down. The numbers are going down over the last few decades. The only one that's growing is children under the age of five. Dr. Allen goes on to say, as a convictional Baptist, it's hard for me to admit this, but when we baptize children too young to grasp the gospel, and as a result, whose hearts haven't been affected by it, it is more troubling than a sprinkling of an infant. Why is this, he says? Because when Presbyterians, for example, sprinkle infants, they anticipate the child will one day be converted. When we baptize young children, we are testifying they have been converted. And many Presbyterians are arguing this point, saying, look, even you Baptists are baptizing younger and younger. Why don't you just make that next little jump over to infant baptism? So you can kind of see the the situation that we get in. What does the Bible have to say about baptism? How does it apply to children? Are we truly wise in baptizing early? Is it better to wait? These are some of the questions I want to uh, bring out to you and look at today. Of course, this is an emotional topic, especially for those of us who may have had children baptized at a young age. Uh, this is an emotional topic because we care about our little precious ones. We want to see them saved, and we want to see them follow in obedience to Christ, the commands He gave in Scripture. But I hope when we're done today, you at least have some things to think about and see where we're coming from as elders of the church when we think about children and baptism. So just a layout of today's... Um, message on children and baptism. Uh, I've got three points that we're going to work through. First, the meaning of baptism. We have to understand what it actually means. We can't just jump into children and not get a good grasp of the meaning from Scripture. What are the requirements of baptism? So what's required of a person who's going to be baptized? And then we'll look specifically at the timing of baptism, uh, particularly with children. So first of all, the meaning of baptism. Most of you have seen a baptism before. Most of you have thought about or even been baptized before. What does it mean? What's the the point of it? What's the purpose of it? Well, it's an ordinance, meaning that it was given as an order, a command of Christ to be done in in the, uh, the assembly of believers. And it's an ordinance that Jesus gave to the church. It's not one we saw in the Old Testament, and it's not one we saw... um, particularly even before Abraham was uh, given the covenant by God. We certainly didn't see it in the law of Moses, but we do see it given to the New Testament church. And it's different, of course, than John the Baptist's baptism. That was just for repentance. New Testament baptism for the church that Christ gave us is to symbolize his death and resurrection and how we're associated with that. So I just want to work through three items on the meaning of baptism. I know there's quite a bit on the outline here today, so I've asked the guys to put it up there. Remember, baptizo, baptism, baptism. The word comes from the Greek baptizo, to be dipped or immersed. I'm not going to try to prove that it's dipping and not sprinkling today. If you do a word study in the Bible, that's pretty clear. Maybe we'll touch on that in another 
uh, message, but that's what the word means. But we know it doesn't mean just thrown in the water, right? You don't get baptized every time you take a bath. Even though it, it means, the root of it means to be dipped or immersed, there's some symbolism to it. And it's not simply a swim, it's not simply a bath, but there's spiritual significance because it symbolizes our identification with God, with Christ, with His church. So first of all, I think I'll just state plainly, associates us, baptism associates us with the triune God and serves as a confession before men. So it's both something that identifies us with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and shows to others that we're confessing our association with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look at Matthew 28 and, ni- and verse 19. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. That's the Great Commission, right? In fact, all that I'm about to read you is the Great Commission. Not just that verse, but go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And then second part of the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's one name, but then we see three persons listed. Three persons, not members, not parts, but three persons of the Trinity. In one single name, but that single name contains three persons. Great theology here on the Trinity. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the third part of the Great Commission is to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. In other words, they ought to have teachers. They ought to know the Bible. You can't just... uh, Say somebody saved, baptize them, send them along the way. This has the idea of what we call church membership, where somebody comes into a group of believers and gets taught the word. Jesus says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So this association with the Trinity, he doesn't say here just baptize in the name of of Jesus Christ the Son, but it's all of them. It it distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. Because if he just said, in the name of God... Well, the Jew technically could agree to that, right? They could be baptized in the name of God. But it's the fact that we believe in what the Bible reveals. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're saying, I belong to that God, the God of the Bible. Not the God of uh, American mindset, not the God of uh, American politics, not the God of whatever... People tend to think about God at any time in history, but the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, when, when people get saved out of a pagan family religion, often the parents are so mad about when they think and talk about Christ and they mention, look, I'm a Christian. What really angers pagan parents is when their children go and get baptized. You know why? Because now that's a public confession. Now that brings shame upon a Muslim family or shame upon a Hindu family because now you've gone public. They think it's, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking, you're working it out. They're okay with that. But when you go public, they even realize as pagans that you're associating yourself with a different God than what the family has believed in. And so in doing that, at the same time, it serves as a confession of faith and the Trinity before others. 1 Peter 3.20. Corresponding to that, he's talking here about Noah and being saved through the ark, through the water. Corresponding to that, like that, like that picture in Noah, baptism now saves you. 
A lot of people think, well, there it is, baptism saves you. But, you know, Peter knew everybody would take it out of context, so then he clarifies it. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Not the, the water doesn't save you as it washes your body, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is like an appeal to God for a good conscience. You're publicly showing that you have appealed to God for salvation, for cleansing, for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just taking a bath, and the baptism doesn't actually save anyone, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. So you're publicly associating yourselves with the God of the Bible when you're baptized, adult, uh, younger person, older person, and you're making a confession before men. Secondly, what it means is that it formally initiates us into the church as a member. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is a key verse here. Uh, This is the first time we see it practiced in the New Testament. The first time we see it practiced. And we see a very clear process here. Just like Jesus said, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. Where does that teaching occur? It's supposed to occur uh, mostly in the local church. Acts 2.37 Now, when they heard this, when they heard Peter's sermon, when they heard how they themselves as Jews had participated in the piercing of Jesus Christ, when they heard that, they were pierced to the heart. That's conviction. That's conviction over their sin, their guilt, their their sin before God. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent. We know faith is in there too, right? Whenever the apostles said repent, it was obvious to everyone they also meant have faith. Whenever they said have faith, it was obvious to all the Jews at the time that they also meant repent. Those go together. So repent, we could say and have faith there. Repent and each of you be baptized. So they're making a disciple. They're now each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mention the whole Trinity there. But he specifies Jesus Christ because that's one person of the Trinity that they would have the problem with. Jesus Christ, whom they just crucified. So he mentions that. And it's for the forgiveness of your sins. So it, it symbolizes. The baptism is a symbol of the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's just coming down upon the church at this point. Later, they'll receive the Spirit and then get baptized. Receive the Spirit the moment you have saving faith. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received His word were baptized. Not everybody in Jerusalem, maybe not even everybody who was there that day, but the ones who had received his word, they had believed, they had, they had been saved, God had opened their hearts to believe the word that he spoke. And what happens after that? All those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church, the first church. They, somebody's counting, by the way. You don't get to 3,000 just in your head. There's actually somebody taking names. So they're keeping some sort of role. And they're brought into the church. So 
in ancient times all the way up until the 1900s. Baptism was a sign of coming in to the church. Baptism in a Baptist church was required before you could join. And then uh, infant baptizers considered you somehow part of the church the moment the infant was baptized. They looked for confirmation later, but they said that's a member of our church because they've been baptized. Paul calls upon this in Ephesians 4. Remember in Ephesians 4, he's listing all of these things and he's appealing to their unity. I don't think Paul could come today and say this because a lot of Christians haven't even been baptized as adults. But uh, he comes to them in Ephesians. He says, look, you need to be unified. You need to be unified. Remember the basics. Remember the things we all have in common. And he starts to list them in Ephesians 4. And he gets to verse 5 and he says, One Lord... One faith, one baptism. There's only one type of baptism that Paul knows of, and he says, you guys remember, because you've been baptized. In other words, he expects all the Ephesians in that church to have been baptized. There's an association. You make the disciple, you baptize them, they come into the church and learn things. They, they hear teachers. They learn the word of God from others. Baptism's like a team jersey, some have said. It shows everyone whose team you're on. If you don't have a jersey, first thing you need to do after getting hired to play by the owner is to put your jersey on. Can you imagine somebody gets hired to play for the Spurs, but they don't want to put on the jersey? Christian gets saved, but over a long period of time, they refuse to be baptized, even though they understand its significance. That's not the point of today's message, but it needs to be said. Uh, too many are not getting baptized as adults. Now, because it is the outward professing sign of faith, Baptism serves as the gateway to full participation in the life as a church member. And then thirdly, baptism, what's the meaning? It's a symbol that we're united with Christ in His death and resurrection. So it associates us with the Trinity, formally initiates us into the life of the church, and then three is a symbol that we are united with Christ in His death and resurrection. Go to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6.3, often will say this verse, or refer to it at least, as I'm baptizing someone. And here we're looking at the forgiveness of sins and newness of life that baptism symbolizes. Romans 6.3, again, he just expects they know what baptism is, how it's done, and what it symbolizes. He doesn't make an argument for that because they've all been baptized. Or do you not know? In other words... Don't you remember? Don't you recall what happened when you were baptized? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He just assumes they will have been baptized. It was just assumes he hasn't even been to Rome yet, but whoever was there making disciples would have done that. Probably some of the other church leaders and apostles who went there. And verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see the symbology there? The the immersion of believers into water and bringing them up again, it shows how we've been baptized into his death? Yeah, it does, because we go down into the water to show the old person dying, just as Christ died on the cross for our sins. When we're brought up, that symbolizes newness of life and our promise of a future resurrection, just like Christ was 
resurrected after his death. So it's a symbol that you we are united with Christ and his death and resurrection. Now, the main point he's making there in Romans 6 is more about sanctification. He's saying, look back to your baptism and remember what it symbolized. He's not saying trust in your baptism. He's not saying you were saved by baptism. Just look back and remember the symbol. And now he uses that in Romans 6 to compel them to live holy lives. So why is it even important that we've been united with Christ in his death? Look at verse 10. Verse 10. You see, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's why it's important. Sorry, verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Once for all. Once for for all those who would believe in him. He died for our sins. And if we are baptized, we're professing that publicly. You see, the point in Romans 6, if you reverse it, is don't go and say you've been baptized, and say you're a believer, and say that symbolizes your death and resurrection, and then live in sin. This whole point in Romans 6 is to live a holy life because of who you claim to be in Christ, even at your baptism. So baptism is a perfect picture of our union with Christ. It symbolizes how we have been knit with Christ. We've been perfectly united. Galatians 3.27 For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You put him on. Baptism should be done in such a way that only believers are doing it, of course, and in such a way that they understand what it means. They've been clothed in Christ. You're symbolizing that through baptism. Having been buried with him, Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, and which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So that's what baptism symbolizes. Now there's some false teaching about baptism, heretical, really, teaching. It is heretical. It's called baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration says that you must be baptized to be saved. In fact, it's the baptism that's part of your salvation. Of course, we know the thief on the cross was not baptized. Had he got down from the cross, he would have been baptized. So that's no excuse for those of us who believe not to be baptized. But we know Jesus said, you'll be in paradise with me today. Because he had faith and he trusted in Christ alone. And therefore, that's all Jesus said that he needed. When he made that statement, he was, he was even displaying fruit. When the thief on the cross said, this man is innocent. This man's the son of God. That's the kind of confession that is needed. A baptismal regeneration practiced by the Roman Catholic Church, some Lutherans, many denominations like the Church of Christ and Disciples of Christ say that if you haven't been baptized, you are not saved. I've even heard some Church of Christ people tell me that the moment you even think of professing faith, they'll stop everything, rush up to the church at midnight and baptize you under the water because you, you, you can't have too much time, they say, or you won't be saved. But nothing can be added to Justification by faith alone and Christ alone. We can't add a work like baptism. So we must be careful there and, and, and not think that baptism saves and, and even correct others who might be led into that heresy. No external rituals can be added to the requirements of faith and repentance. Otherwise, it's to be considered a different gospel, Galatians 1. 
So there's the meaning and even a little bit about what it doesn't mean. Remember, it's a symbol. It symbolizes something that's already happened. Now let's look at the subjects. The subjects. Or requirements, sorry. I changed my outline at the last minute. See, I changed my outline. That's correct, my notes. It's better to think, in this case, about requirements. What's required of a person when they're going to get baptized? Well, the apostles gave us many biblical examples of baptism, particularly in the book of Acts. If you'll just go to Acts 2 again, and we're going to work our way through a few verses, if you can keep up there. Acts 2, we're looking at what the apostles did. What was their practice? How do they know when to baptize someone? Because uh, as you'll see, a person being baptized must believe and understand the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.37, we just looked at. Remember, Peter's preaching. They heard the gospel. They heard it, which meant they were old enough to understand it and hear it. They repented of their sins. They received the Holy Spirit and believed in the name of Christ. Let's go now to Acts 8.12. Acts 8.12. Here's Philip. And uh, let me just read this to you, 8.12 through 17. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And it goes on to talk about Simon himself believing. This is Simon Magus. Uh, verse 14, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So here they, they believed... But they hadn't received the Spirit because the Spirit came down in certain phases throughout Acts. And that was testifying that God wanted to include not just the Jews, but here, right, the Samaritans as well, and then later the Gentiles in Acts, as we'll see. But the point is, back in verse 12, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom, they must believe to even be baptized. 8.35, Acts 8.35, then Philip opened his mouth, And beginning from this scripture, the one that the Ethiopian eunuch had been reading from Isaiah 53, with that scripture, he began to preach a message, basically. He preached Jesus to him. As he went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? So he gets down, they go into the water, they come out of the water. So there's a little bit on the mode right, how it's done. But the point is, the Ethiopian eunuch had to hear some things from the scriptures and believe them and understand. You know, this is a summary of what happened. We don't actually know all the details of what was said and what was believed, but we know he had to believe the essentials of the faith. Chapter 9, verse 18. And immediately there there fell from his eyes, this is Paul, or Saul, they fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. So the apostle Paul was baptized after meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus. He was blinded. He literally had scales fall off his eyes. 
And then he was baptized. Chapter 10, verse 44. So we're seeing an obvious pattern of, of belief, of faith, of repentance, of knowing who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Uh, it's according to the scriptures that we even get the gospel. 10.44 While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. So here, the Spirit now is falling upon them when they believe. Things are changing throughout the book of Acts. So we've got to be careful and not think, take everything from Acts and try to apply it today. Look for these patterns, how things are, are going to end up by the end of Acts and through the rest of the Bible. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter, the Jews, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them, speaking with tongues, exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. Teach us, plant a church here. They gathered together, I assume, and did indeed plant that church. So we see a pattern here that to be baptized, you had to believe, had to repent, you had to understand Christ. Of course, there's the background knowledge of who God is. How can you understand repentance and faith in Christ if you don't know who God is in general, who we are as sinners? You see, that's all assumed in what they're saying. People in that day didn't argue we weren't a sinner. Even the pagans knew you were sinners. That's why they worship false gods to try to satisfy that guilt. Today we have to go back and argue, but they assume that so they don't explain it all in detail what the person would have believed, but we can work backwards and see that. Now what about these household passages where the whole house gets baptized? Does that mean they were baptizing babies? Does that mean they were baptizing young children? Who's involved there? Well, let's go to Acts 16 and look at some of these. Acts 16, we have the Philippian jailer gets saved. And in verse 13, they go home with him and preach the gospel. So he says, what must I do to be saved? Uh, Paul and his companions say you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes people take that and make it too simplistic. To believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ means he needs to have understood who Jesus was. And of course, repentance is assumed in that. So he would have had to repent of his sins, which he's already there. That's why he's asking, what must I do to be saved? Let's look at what happens when they go home with them. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside. Uh, I'm sorry, we're not a Philippian jailer yet. We're, we're talking about Lydia first. Let's jump down to the Philippian jailer and I'll come back to Lydia. Uh, 1631. Get so excited I get ahead of myself. You ever do that in the Bible or when you're teaching? Teaching your kids, maybe? They said to the jailer, 1631, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Does that mean that if the jailer gets saved, his household automatically gets saved? Of course not. We know that that's not the case. He's saying, if your whole household believes like you, then they'll be saved. To believe, you have to be able to hear and understand. You have to be able to express those things back to someone and show repentance and show fruit, of course. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. 
And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their hands. And immediately he, the jailer, was baptized. He and all his. That's it. The original just says he and all his. Now, translations have an inserted household there to try to guess at what was happening, maybe even a, a good educated guess. But it just says he and all his. He and all those who belong to him. His household, but probably different than most of us think of household. Now go back to Lydia 16.13. On the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to a riverside. We, we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. They're not just chit-chatting. They're not just gossiping. They're not just talking about the weather. They're speaking the words of the gospel of Christ. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. So she already knew about God and was trying to worship Him in her own way. She was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Her heart had been opened. Her heart had been changed. Her heart had been born again, regenerated. Then she could believe. And when she and her household had been baptized, she asked them to come and stay there and rest a while. She and her household had been baptized. Not because she had faith was the household baptized, because they also would have heard the same message. God would have opened the heart. See, the pattern set with Lydia, Luke, the writer, just assumes we're going to also take that over into the next verse. They must have heard before and then believed and then been baptized. Let's go now to 18.8, one more household verse. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. Again, making it obvious, right? We change scenery. Luke's going to make it clear. He believed and so did his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. They have to hear it, they have to believe it, then they're baptized. So the subjects or the recipients or the requirements of baptism is someone who has believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ or repented of their sin, understands the gospel, understands the basics of the faith. And if asked basic questions of the faith, they don't deny them. They may not know all the things about the coming of Christ and the return, But if you ask a new believer and you say, will Christ return? And they say, absolutely not. They're not a believer. That's what the Bible indicates. 1 Corinthians 15, for example. But let's go back to households here. Most translations today will include the word household, even if it's not translated back with the Philippian jailer. Those other verses I read specifically have the word household. But who were the household? That was the immediate family the extended family, and the slaves. Yet no children are explicitly mentioned, no infants are mentioned, or children, as being baptized. And if you recall what I said a few weeks ago, what did they think of children in that day in general? I'm not saying that God thought this, I'm not saying the writers of Scripture thought this, but children were often overlooked and not considered meaningful contributions to society. Children were something that just got taken care of by a slave, or a tutor, until they were of a certain age, and then they would be included in the household affairs. So we don't even know, particularly if household is just speaking of adults here, 
or they're also including children. Remember, when did somebody become an adult, according to the Bible? At 13, 12, 13, roughly. They're considered an adult, a young man. There's no adolescence in the Bible. Children, babies or infants, children, and young men and women. So we're not sure here. We can't, of course, build a theology around something that's not specifically said. So regarding infant baptism, we believe here that immersion of believers in water is the correct and biblical method of baptism, but particularly only those who've been born again, and they show themselves that they've been born again by trusting in Christ alone for salvation and repentance of sins, which would exclude the teaching of infant baptism. Nothing in the Bible speaks of infant baptism. And if there's nothing in the Bible about it, where did it come from? Well, it enters into Christianity in about the 3rd and 4th century, maybe the late 2nd century. First had adults who would put off baptism until the very end because they began to associate it with cleansing you from your sins, literally cleansing you from your sins. They took these passages from Acts 2, didn't put them with the rest of Scripture, misunderstood them, and they said, you know what? If I get saved and then I'm going to commit some sins after that, I better wait until the very end, right before I die, old age in other words, to get baptized, to wash those sins away so I'll be pure before I die. And then parents said, well, what if my child dies? Now they're not washed, if that's what we believe. And so what we might call the early Roman Catholic Church and Eastern churches began to baptize infants. By the way, if you've ever seen a video of the Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox baptized babies, actually do it by immersion. Today, look at baptizo, and they're Greek, and so they understand, even with babies, they think you ought to immerse them. So they'll throw that baby down in the water three times, and the baby's just uh, screaming. It's quite interesting. But infant baptism is not in the Bible. It wasn't practiced for the first 200 years. It came in later. Even the Reformers didn't catch on to that and, and change it. They did deny uh, regeneration occurring because of baptism, but it was later that Reformed Baptists and other Baptists were convinced that only believers should be baptized. So we're convinced by the testimony of Scripture that baptism is to occur after one has made a confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, thus excluding infant baptism. I don't know, my, my kids are smart, but they don't talk when they first come out. Not at eight days, I think, is when a lot of infants get baptized. I don't know, maybe your kids are just smarter than mine and they can speak and express that they have faith uh, at, when they're born. But mine take a couple of years to even start making sense. All right, lastly, and our, really our point that we're driving at today, is the timing of baptism. The timing of baptism, and it, as it relates to children. So we've been looking at baptism. Well, we looked at the different... Go back to the uh, previous slide, guys. We've been looking at the meaning, the requirements... Now, we want to try to apply that to children. But we have a problem there. Because every time the age of a baptized person is explicitly mentioned in Scripture, it's a what? An adult. There's no warrant in the New Testament for indefinitely prolonging the period between conversion and baptism. So it doesn't say they must wait till they become an adult. But there are no examples of children being baptized either in Scripture. So we have to walk with wisdom and be careful. Since the age of baptism is not 
directly discussed in Scripture. Therefore, it's a matter of wisdom and prudence. Wisdom and prudence for each church's leadership and the parents of those children. Both have to have wisdom and prudence. Both do. A question that's come up is, when is the right age? If a child expresses faith young, when's the right age to baptize them? A church has to think about that. Even though there's not an explicit verse, you have to think about that. I mean, what if a a newborn gets brought to me to be baptized? What should I say? What if a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a seven-year-old, a ten-year-old? So it's a question that church leaders have dealt with, but only in the past hundred years or so. This is a newer issue. It will surprise many of us to know that this was not an issue before roughly 1900s, late 1800s. Before that, if you are Presbyterian, Puritan, Congregational, Reformed Dutch, you practice infant baptism. And if you were Baptists, they all believed in waiting until adulthood, which they considered 18 years of age. A guy got his PhD a few years ago. He was studying this out. And he wanted to know, how did Baptists in the 16th, 17th, and 1800s go from 18 down to four or five. And after writing his dissertation on it at Southern Seminary, which is another Baptist seminary, he determined that the age kept decreasing due to social pressures, particularly by parents, that led pastors to baptize younger and younger over the decades. Again, maybe getting confused. I mean, we could speculate, but maybe they're getting confused as to what baptism is and what it means, and maybe associating it with salvation too much. Not, does not save. Baptism does not save. So if my child expresses faith and something happens to them where the Lord takes them, the question is not whether they've been baptized or not. Right? The question probably goes back to if they're young, what we discussed a few weeks ago. But the question is, if they're older, did they express saving faith? So he determined that over time, pressure from parents and pressure from society had led Baptist pastors to baptize younger and younger. Generally, there's three different categories of the way church leaders think through this today. Some say any age. doesn't matter. Whenever a child says anything, or even you can lead a child through a series of questions to say, yes, they must be baptized. They should be baptized. A lot of Southern Baptist churches that we know and probably grew up in are like this today. A lot of non-denominational churches are like this today. A second group is kind of in the middle, preteen and teenage years, when fruit can be more easily discerned. A famous Baptist pastor who believed this, W.A. Criswell, a longtime pastor, and by the way, he was a Calvinistic pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas. He encouraged and affirmed childhood decisions for Christ. He believed children could be saved, but he said, let's hold off until 10 years to baptize them. John Piper, Bethlehem Baptist Church, said, and his church uh, decided to wait until 11 years old, and they have lots of content on their site about wine. John MacArthur, Grace Community Church, said at 12 years old would be the earliest they would be comfortable baptizing somebody. So that's sort of the, the preteen or mostly into the teenage years. The other group says modern adulthood. Mark Devers, the most popular one today, espousing this view, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Nine Marks Ministry. And their reasoning goes like this. As they assume adult responsibilities sometime in late high school with driving, employment, 
non-Christian friends, voting, legality of marriage, maturity, which would allow a son or daughter to deal directly with the church, not under the parents' direct authority. Now, for those of us who grew up in group number one that baptizes anybody at a young age, this sounds rather legalistic. But remember, this was the Baptist practice up until the late 18, early 1900s. Most Reformed Baptists still delay until 18 today. Charles Spurgeon, for example, waited to baptize his own believing sons until they were 18. Most Baptist churches in Europe, Asia, and Africa today wait until early 20s before baptizing the children. They, want, they, they, they take a profession of faith, they trust it, and then they encourage that child and the parents to wait until their child is in their early 20s. Now, as the elders of this church, we've discussed it. We've discussed it over the years. We already were in agreement, but more recently we've talked about it some more. And again, this issue is a matter of wisdom and conscience, but we want to urge and recommend parents to wait until at least 13 years of age to shepherd their believing children through baptism. So it is the parents who are helping, and it is the church leadership who are thinking about this together, but ultimately it's the child that we care about. And so why wait? Is that even in the Bible? Well, no, because they believed, and they're all adults that we see examples of. We don't see examples of children. doesn't mean children weren't saved. Maybe children were baptized. It just doesn't say. So we need to be careful. Even today, believers, adults, wait some period of time to be baptized, don't they? Does everyone get baptized on the day that they're saved? Very few of us would fit that category, right? We, we might wait until the next baptismal class and baptism. Might wait until we join a church. Well, some of you didn't find a church for some months, and then you came for some time, and then we taught you on baptism, and then you joined, and at that day you were baptized. So all of us wait. Most would feel very uncomfortable, I think, that believe in believers' baptism. Most would be uncomfortable seeing a two- or three- or four-year-old baptized just because they said they believed in Jesus or repented of sin. Some adults by the way, also wait, why? To have family come. I've seen people put it off for a year just to make sure they can get their family here to watch. I'm not recommending that. But again, even adults sometimes will wait. Understand your desire to see your children saved. Understand if you have kids, your desire to see them baptized. I live with that daily. I have eight. One has been baptized. That doesn't mean I only think one are saved. It just means that we're encouraging them and talking through this and telling them to wait. Let me give you four reasons to wait, and then we'll be done. Four reasons to wait. First of all, we need to wait for fruit. If we were here last week, we talked a lot about fruit near the end of the sermon. But we want to see evidence of saving faith. As a parent, as, a, as, a, as an elder board, as pastors, we want to see evidence of saving faith. Remember, they don't get a junior Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit. You will see fruit if they're saved. Not perfect fruit, but you don't see that in adults. You'll see fruit. You'll see evidence. You know, I don't baptize adults unless they can give a credible profession and show some evidence throughout their life or throughout the previous few weeks or months of being in Christ. It's the same with adults, really. Just we're waiting maybe a little longer for young children who express faith. Wait for fruit. Evidence of saving faith. That's what we're looking for. 
You're not going to see all of this immediately after they profess faith. How can you look at a five-year-old or a six-year-old and see fruit? doesn't mean they can't be saved. It just means we may not see a lot of what we would call fruit from the Bible's perspective. We need to wait. We need to see it. We need to make sure our children aren't being talked into it by parents, grandparents, adults. Do you understand false assurance is a huge danger in American church? It's a huge danger. More children get baptized, get false assurance, and then later deny the faith than adults who get baptized and walk away from the faith. It's drastically different. So we don't want to give false assurance as parents, as church leaders. We recommend waiting to see fruit because the Bible often calls Christians to examine themselves. And believing parents want to assist their children through this. You remember what Paul says? It's that verse that's not often preached today. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. The child needs to know about that verse. At some point, they need to understand it and try to apply that to their life. He says, examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Now, maybe a child has that ability at an early age. We're saying wait to confirm that and profess it publicly through baptism until they're at least 13, maybe older. Depends on the child. These children often grow up to become adults who never examine themselves if they are baptized too early and then they don't see whether they're in the faith. They don't seek to make their calling and election sure, as Second Peter 1 says. Then there's the problem of rebaptisms. Rebaptisms. Anybody heard of rebaptisms? It's a horrible word because there's only one baptism, right? You only get baptized once after you're saved. But many will do something when they're younger and get baptized and then later realize they didn't come to faith until some point later in their life, later teens, as an adult. I've baptized many of you who have that very testimony. I thought I was saved when I was a a younger person or even a teenager. I got baptized Turns out in my 20s, I figured out I wasn't. I turned to the Lord later. Now I'm truly saved. I want to get rebaptized. Let's just say baptized, right? The previous one's just a bath, a swim. I mean, I don't want to make light of it, but it, it really is. I mean, if it wasn't truly baptism, then we should call it something else. So let's be careful of that. Baptism's not a rite performed upon a person, but it's an ordinance in which he is a full participant. Therefore, the one who's baptized must have knowledge of what is being done. And that points to number two, wait for understanding. A second reason to wait is understanding. Understanding. Not because younger children can't be believers. Have I said that quite a bit of times today? Right? Sometimes people hear this, they should wait to be baptized. And again, faith and salvation is so associated with baptism, we can't always separate it. Not saying children can't understand the gospel and be believers but because they need to understand what it is they're saying when they publicly profess Christ and that they're not being coached, it's a good idea to wait. They're going to, by the way, what do we do when we have baptisms here? They come up, give a testimony. We think that's biblical. We ask people to do that. And we would ask anyone who's baptized to do that. So a child ought to understand enough to talk about the faith. Talk about the gospel. Do they understand what baptism is? Do they understand it does not save? Again, false assurance. Kids point back to what whenever they 
live a heathen life later. I was baptized at such and such an age. Or I went to church for such and such a time. Do they understand the importance of church membership, church discipline? Again, a child gets baptized, they're coming into the faith. Are they ready to be disciplined? If they turn away, if they go into sin as a young person, as a teenager, they need to understand these things. A good uh, quick reference is Galatians 4, 1 through 2. It just tells us what they thought of, of children in that time. Uh, look it up later. We're running out of time. But Galatians 4, 1 through 2 talks about children who have an inheritance coming, but they're, they're watched over. They're, they're held in a certain way as a child until they become an adult. 13, by the way, in the Bible. Then they get that inheritance. It's, I think, an example here of they understand maybe at a young age what their inheritance might be. They can understand the gospel if we apply that example. They understand the gospel. They understand Christ. And then we wait to symbolize it with baptism. Number three, wait for maturity and independent thinking. Paul says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Children are childish. Doesn't mean they can't believe. But we often can't tell what's going on. Are they pleasing their parents? Are they pleasing their grandparents? Are they just doing this because this is how they grew up? What's going to happen later? What's going to happen in their teenage years? When the hormones start raging, when they start wanting to push back and rebel, what's going to happen? And Paul even acknowledges children often speak like a child, act like a child, think like a child. The Bible considers 13 again as a young man or a young woman. To be baptized as a young person, people need to know that the decision was their own and that they did it out of their own desire to be obedient. We never want a child to grow up and think, you know, I was baptized, but it, I don't know what it meant. I don't know why I did it. I was my parents. That was my parents. They need to have their own desire to be obedient to Christ. They have to have a desire to live a pure and holy life, since baptism publicly marks them, it publicly marks them as a follower of Christ. Number four, wait for significance. Wait for significance. Children often want something now, no matter what. They want it now, even if they don't know the significance of the thing they want. Many believers later in life, as I said, want to be re-baptized because they don't really remember why they were baptized. Or they don't know why they did it. It feels like something forced upon them rather than something they embraced willingly. Now, this is not all children who are baptized. Some. Because baptism is seen as something clear and final, because there's really only one true baptism in the Bible, our primary concern here at this church, and hopefully as a parent, is that when a younger child is baptized, he tends to look to that experience as proof that he was saved. We don't want that. I think I've made the case for that. Therefore, in the case of unregenerate child who is baptized, very common in American churches, baptism actually does him a disservice. It's better to wait until the child understands and understands what baptism signifies. Now, what if you've already baptized your child? What if you've already done that? Well, this is by no means to negate that. doesn't mean it was a wrong thing to do. We're just encouraging. Wisdom says it's better to wait. If it's already happened, then you still look for fruit. You still look for these things. Understanding, maturity, 
significance. Talk to them about these things. We have a good reason to talk to them today because they've heard it in this sermon. Delaying baptism does not mean we should consider previous childhood baptisms invalid. Many of you were saved at a young age. Then your church baptized you right away. That doesn't mean that baptism wasn't true. We're just seeking to move forward now with wisdom. So going forward with regards to unbaptized children, we should be very careful in how we handle these precious little ones. These are little ones that the Lord has given us. We can't just do what we want and not consider what God's word has to inform us on and what's wise and what others are saying as regards to that theology. We've got to handle them with care. We've got to shepherd them. I would never force an adult to be baptized. That would be a sin. The Lord would hold me responsible. So we ought to be careful as well with our children. Baptism is the solemn and beautiful testimony of a believer. And it is that we've had faith in him, that he's been crucified, that he's been buried, that he's risen. And that's what we're doing when we baptize somebody. So as parents, it seems wise to wait to baptize believing children until they are young adults, teens, while also evangelizing and shepherding our children from a very young age. I hope I give you some things to think about and talk about with your spouse and consider. Certainly we want to look to the scriptures, and even when the scriptures aren't explicit, make our case from the scriptures on wisdom and prudence. Let's ask the Lord's help in that. Lord, Father, this is uh, often emotional tugs at our hearts to think of our children, to think of them uh, being saved. Lord, we want that so much. We pray for that almost daily, Lord. And we know you do save children. We see examples of that in the Bible. But help us to be wise. Help us to, to understand uh, the issues that surround us and this culture and the American Christian culture. And help us, like the rest of the world that believes in credo-baptism, help us to to wait and see fruit and see understanding in these things that I mentioned here. Give us a love for our children to know Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, two books that you might...